and welcome to another episode of Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast by Fisher Jordan, a boutique management consulting firm based in New York. Fisher Jordan helps top business leaders solve complex problems through strategic insights, novel data analytics techniques, and specialized technology optimizations. This podcast is our hub to discuss topics we see at the horizon line of the marketplace, sharing observations from our work in a variety of sectors covering emerging trends and topics of interest to business leaders and consumers alike on anything from finance, technology, marketing, healthcare, and beyond. That, then, is our view from the crow's nest. We're trying something a little bit different from our usual interview-style format for today's discussion, which will instead feature a more free-form conversational approach, a fireside chat or a casual debate at the canteen, if you will. I hope people still know what a canteen is, although we haven't been working in offices for so long that, you know, maybe people won't know what those are anymore. Anyway, rather than having only one main topic that we cover in depth, we'll get some quick takes on a handful of recent topics, an opportunity for shorter, more opinionated discussion with a number of different perspectives. Excited to try that out. So welcome to the first ever installment of this variant of Views from the Crow's Nest, which we're calling The Mess Hall. All right, well, welcome, everybody. Today I'm joined by three stalwart members of the Fisher Jordan team. Before we go any further, everybody just say your names. Hi, I'm Shreya. I'm an associate at Fisher Jordan, currently speaking from Jodhpur. Hey, uh, my name is Austin LaRoche, uh, senior analyst uh, working out of uh, New Jersey. Hi, Boas Alec, partner working in New York. All right. Well, as we're uh, as we're trying out a new format here for our podcast, we're uh, not going to follow uh, a lot of prompts on one specific topic. Um, we have prompts on several different topics, and uh, the idea here with multiple guests is just to generate more of a multi-way discussion, just to see what everybody's thinking about some of these things that are uh, once again emerging or recent. Maybe some current events in here. Maybe some some things that uh, our research has caused us to start thinking about. But all that that to say uh, the idea here is just to have some sort of discussion and it could turn into a debate it could turn into a monologue (laughs) but that's probably enough preamble so let's go ahead and get into it uh first topic on the docket Uh, let's do a little bit of a post-mortem here so back in january it seemed like all anyone in the finance world was talking about was gamestop after the wall street bet stock rally um bunch of redditors getting together making things happen So we don't need to add another voice to that conversation on what happened or how it happened. I think plenty of people have already talked about all that. However, with the event sort of in the rear view now, at least at the intensity that we saw back in January, I'd like us to talk about whether that was just a statistical blip or if that could represent a sea change for the investment world. So what do y'all think? Let's open it up. Here's a question for you on GameStop. There seem to be two camps, at least two camps that I can see on GameStop. And, and when I say GameStop, I'm, I'm talking about this whole social media, Reddit, um, you know, people coming together with their own research and kind of talking about it online and then going out and taking very similar positions and thereby kind of challenging existing players like, like the major hedge funds and banks in terms of, you know, who can... Uh, who can exert more pricing power, you know, a few big hedge funds or, you know, thousands of individual investors who are talking online, right? Right, right. So it seems like there, at least as far as I can tell, it seems like there are two camps. One camp is that 
Wall Street is, is wired against the individual investor, the rules, the institutions, the power. Um, and GameStop is a perfect example because as soon as they had these big hedge funds who were short GameStop on the run, um, the DTCC came in and, you know, increased the insurance requirements or the deposit requirements for, for new positions to basically on um, unattainable levels. And that, that that's when the smaller brokerages like the Robin Hoods of the world had to stop trading. And then that, that kind of took the pressure off, off the hedge fund so they could exit their positions or kind of cover their shorts and then et cetera. So, so it was kind of like from a hedge fund pers- perspective, it looked like a disaster averted from an individual investor perspective. It looked like collusion, right? Right. So which side of those are you uh, proponent of often or Shreya? Of the two, honestly, I would have to go with the collusion. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because the sort of retail investing, is I feel like it's been a very long time coming. I mean, like what looks back about 20 years. Um, now, all of a sudden, you have all of these little brokerages uh, like Robinhood promising no fee trades. Um, you have the birth of uh, things like crowdsourced uh, funding, like Kickstarter, GoFundMe. And really, I feel like this was just a natural evolution. Um, that all being said, it did happen relatively quickly, meaning, you know, regulations naturally couldn't keep up with these changes. And what I mean by all of that is that there are interested parties or entrenched parties running the world right now, right? Meaning they have an interest in maintaining the status quo and with this new player coming in in the form of, uh, you know, masses of uh, regular people, of course they would need to stop that, no? But a good term for this, should it be collusion or should it be the herd behavior? I mean, no one really colluded here. Everyone just followed the herd, right? On one side, yeah, you could call it herd mentality. So I guess it depends if you think talking online is a form of collusion. I personally don't. But I think the allegation is that there was collusion on the other side. So in terms yes. of the the hedge funds who are losing money on their short positions, and then the DTCC, which is they're kind of the person who clears all these transactions and because there's there's flow you know there's like a time delay between when the transaction is executed and when you receive the stock certificate those few days of flow the dccc has a lot of power on dictating the terms of that flow so if they want you to stop trading shares they can create very onerous requirements uh insurance requirements for the that three days of flow um and then that forces, especially these smaller brokerages who don't have the same balance sheet as like a JP Morgan or, or a Bank of America, that these smaller brokerages can't. I mean, Robinhood had to raise a billion dollars uh, almost overnight when this happened in order to enable them to stop, to start trading these, these shares again. So, and that's a big number for a company like Robinhood. So I think the allegation would be collusion on the Wall Street side, not necessarily on the yeah. investor side. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Let me backtrack a bit, actually. I'm giving it some more thought. I don't think finger pointing is really necessary in this case. From what I understand, the DTCC is responsible for ensuring the 
there's no crazy run on the market, kind of like the 1920s uh, bank runs, right? Is that a correct understanding? No, that's not their job. Their job is just to clear transactions. So if, if you, mm-hmm. let's say you buy 100 shares of GameStop from me, uh, those those physical stock certificates have to get to you somehow, or they need to get to someone who's who represents you. And so right. those those people who represent you have accounts at the DTCC, but um, it takes time for the stock certificate to go from point A to point B. So that time that it takes, uh, that's where DTCC is there to kind of guarantee that transaction. So if it weren't oh, for DTCC, so for example, yeah. you, you could buy shares from me today, but you wouldn't know until three days from today whether I actually delivered those shares. Oh, okay. So they're basically, yeah, they're a clearinghouse. Um, yeah. So that being said, I mean, how do they have the power to uh, regulate their margin requirements? No, it's not the margin requirements. It's in order to, to provide that clearinghouse function, they get to charge a certain, uh, demand a certain deposit on the part of the brokerage to say, okay, um, if I'm going to trust you that you're going to deliver X number of shares, I need a little bit of collateral. So usually that's, that's in the range of like thousands of dollars or, you know, if it's a bigger yeah. brokerage, it could be millions of dollars. But uh, in the case of these shares, they raise the requirements into the billions um, for some of these that brokerages. Makes, okay. well, I was going to say that being said, then I feel like that was the natural response from the DTCC, no? Um, really with such a volatile stock, they, ha- they would have no option other than to raise the amount of collateral necessary. So I guess really it was just the system being the system um, as opposed to any form of collusion. I'm on the fence here. I can tell. <laughs> Shreya, what do you think? I still think that uh, there was certainly collusion from the hedge fund side because, yeah, you do need collateral. You need to increase the margin requirements when such things are happening, but raising it to that extent was, of course, crazy. So... Uh, that itself says it, it is collusion. Like you can't short something which is not present, right? The whole idea of shorting it beyond 100%. So it turned out to be a huge collusion, I think. I think usually with these things, you have to kind of look at who's not talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so so th- there's a lot of finger pointing, but probably the guys behind it are the guys who are notably silent, meaning like, either the Federal Reserve or someone in the Treasury Department. But mm-hmm. my guess is that th- these funds that were under threat, um, they were looking at like 20% drawdowns on these positions. And these positions were like less than 1% of their portfolio initially, yeah. but because they didn't cover their shorts fast enough, they, they were looking at like 20%, sometimes 30% drawdowns. Yeah. Um, and these were these were large funds. These were like ten billion dollar funds, twenty billion dollar funds. So, what would have happened is if if that twenty percent became, let's say, forty percent, um, these funds would have been subjected to margin calls from the brokers, and that's regulatory. You can't change that overnight. So, right. Then they would have had to liquidate other parts of their portfolio in order to meet those margin calls. Um, but when you liquidate mm, yeah. a, 20, uh, a big part of a $20 billion portfolio, you create a lot of market and a lot of additional market volatility beyond just what was going on in those shares. Right. Um, 
And I think that the powers that be, whether it's the Fed, the Treasury, the the SEC, et cetera, looked at that. They said, do we really want another, if you recall, 1999 with long-term capital management where they placed some, some bad bets on the Russian ruble, uh, Russia went in the opposite direction, and suddenly they had to liquidate a lot of positions very quickly. And then the Fed had to orchestrate a bailout by by themselves and the major banks. So they they looked at that and said, "Do we really want another LTCM?" I'm guessing, by the way. I'm not I'm not stating a known fact here. I'm t- I'm giving you my hypothesis for what happened here. Um, and they sat there and said, "No, we don't want another LTCM. We don't want another bailout, especially with the political climate." And then they exerted the the power that they had to slow things down. And yeah, I do think DTCC was part of that. I mean, do I think they they can raise collateral if if there's volatility? Yeah. Do I think that they should have unlimited scope to do that? Absolutely not. All right. Opinion stated. I like it. (laughs) And uh, I think the... Uh, kind of the last thing I want us to touch on is before we move off of this topic, we've had opportunity to, to interact and in some cases work with some people in the investing world. So I'm, I'm curious about something, you know, I feel like the curtain kind of slipped on a lot of this uh, where people almost like a lot of people didn't realize you could do what happened uh, with, with the whole GameStop thing. Um, and even though it's kind of like filtered out of the news cycle, I feel like people are not necessarily going to forget this that quickly, even if uh, the mainstream media isn't talking about it as much. What do you guys think of that? This whole event really did show that it's just not um, the big guys on Wall Street that can move these sorts of uh, markets, right? I think I touched on it a bit earlier, but, um, you know, I feel like uh, crowdsourcing has been easier than ever. And, you know, why, wh- what makes this much different? Um, I think there was one attempt at a crowdsourced hedge fund that eventually did get bought out by Robinhood, uh, Quantopian, um, that, were, that was trying to do, I guess, something similar here. Um, while I don't think that this is the end-all be-all, um, I think that this may kick off some more activity from uh, retail investors as a block as opposed to individuals. And I think the institutions and like everyone should take a lesson from this because it might look like a one-time event right now, but there's nothing actually stopping it from happening again. So we need strong regulations around such situations whenever they arise again. So you're saying you don't want that situation to happen again, Shreya? Yes. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it could have affected, like it could have been really bad for everyone at the end. So we need, we need to have like better mechanisms around it. Because I kind of like that. I like that it happened. I mean, look, this is how Wall Street's been making money for, for centuries, basically. Is you, you got a small group of people with disproportionate market power and influence. And, you know, that, like they go out for lunch at Delmonico's and they, they discuss, you know, who the next hot share is. And then they go out and, and kind of build positions. And then suddenly it's, you see the headline and suddenly everyone else is rushing to, to catch up. And now it's kind of like reverse itself where 
Yeah, but I think yeah, that, that right. needs to be... You can do that anymore. That needs to be resolved separately. But, you know, here we are also risking the retail investors. Because I know here a lot of people made money, but what if it had gone the other way around? Like a lot of I people mean, could have actually lost it. I mean, isn't that investing? Um, isn't there a risk yeah. inherent with Yeah, but, but the retail investors can't really take losses as a hedge fund can, right? Yeah, but then they shouldn't, they should be aware. So you want to, you want to limit their trading to protect them? Yeah. To protect the whole system when such market runs are happening, like when everyone is going after one stock. Mm. As you mentioned that there could have been a situation like bailout, which nobody wanted in such a political scenario. So. I mean, I'm just looking at the larger economy here, not looking at hedge funds, not looking at retail investors, just the economic system as a whole. And so then the question would be, do you know of a way to do that without curtailing the rights of the individual investor? Yeah, that's that's something we need to definitely need to think through uh, because it won't benefit investors to have their powers curtailed as on the other on the flip side like there has to be an innovative solution around it and i'm not sure of what it could be and then think of it from the company's perspective too right so you have gamestop who i mean i think right now they're trading around 40 ish uh when this all started that they, they, they were below i think they're below 20 actually um and they they've gotten as high as 400 i think so um, from the point of view of GameStop, it, you know, the stock was like a, a, a popular target, if you will, for, for short sellers for the last year or so. And the company management was powerless. Like the, they would sit there and watch their stock drop day after day, which, by the way, if your stock drops, it, it, it impacts the company because um, certainly senior management, a lot of their compensation is based on the stock price. So, so now they're working for, for much yeah. less than, than what they thought they'd be working for. Uh, and a lot of times employees have stock options too. So now you're hurting the employees of the company. Um, it's, a, it's a recruiting tool and you're hiring someone, you, you know, a lot of companies offer stock options or if your stock's been, been falling consistently, that that's not no longer as attractive of an option for recruiting is so and then it also limits your ability to raise more money. So if, if you need to go out and raise more capital for additional investments or whatnot, if your stock price is down, that that limits how much money you can raise. So it actually impacts the the day-to-day operations of the company when these short sellers come in and decide, okay, we're just going to systematically depress the, the price. So if I'm the company, the question is, would I want my fate dictated by a few dozen, you know, government officials and hedge fund managers and, and banking officials, or would I rather be dictated by tens of thousands of individual, individual investors who are each making their own decision? Well, isn't that true for like shorting in general? Like should shorting be really allowed then? Good question. Like, what if like all of the retail investors again uh, start something similar to what happened this time and they shot like what if they were on the other side they were shorting it then it would have still have the same effect as what the hedge fund had 
so i think we are really calling after your the the goodness or you what what do you say the righteousness of shorting being allowed in a in uh, in us right so i mean short but shorting just comes down to borrowing a share from someone right so yeah but like if you don't, we, if you don't want to allow shorting you you shouldn't allow people to borrow shares at the same time right yeah when like i mean uh, the we are talking about the negatives of shorting here like borrowing per se is not bad but when that happens over a certain quantity then it becomes really bad for the company and its uh, financials so i guess probably putting some limits over how much you can short for a given company of the total capital that could be a possible uh, solution here I mean, really, it just sounds like it's the tyranny of the, the masses versus the tyranny of the uh, minority, right? I'm not really sure where I stand on this one, but um, my gut would tell me uh, I would prefer the uh, system as it stands as opposed to a uh, new untrodden ground. It's the evil you know versus the evil you don't, and um, really, that the exploring the option of uh, being beholden to a much larger community means a lot more i guess really just one actor to um appease for lack of a better word but it's new um and potentially more unstable all right i don't know if we're going to solve uh <laughs> we're going to solve whether or not we should have shorting done away with on this call maybe we, maybe on the next call we'll figure that out but um I do want to move us along here because I think there's some other interesting stuff we can talk about that's kind of in this same territory um, where, where we're dealing with a lot of questions on tech and tech's influence on finance and, and the economy here. So a related topic that I'd like us to take a look at today has to do with Bitcoin, uh, one of those other things that people aren't talking about enough already, I guess. Um, a couple of years ago, we published a piece that was more focused on blockchain. But we came up with a framework that basically tracks technological changes with potential for societal impact as social changes. So looking at them like they're social changes, even though they're really technological changes. Um, but we laid out a timeline that major social changes follow on their way from being a fringe concern to becoming something more of a mainstream interest. And we wrote that paper about blockchain, but if we overlaid it onto Bitcoin, where do you guys surmise that Bitcoin is on the path to mass adoption, given the recent developments that it has had in the news? Maybe you can just remind me, what, what was the, the framework or what, what were the, the different steps of the cycle that we had uh, identified there? So uh, I think it was five or six stages um, of the like the basically what it takes for a dramatic social change to be adopted and the first one was kind of like the the introduction for it um stage yeah. one where there's there's like an initial you could call it like a prophet um who is kind of the, the the first person that's talking about something and and getting getting attention on it then there's like your your early adopters your disciples um that uh that are kind of the the next ones to come along and it's still a, mostly like a fringe interest but there's uh, and there's like probably some skepticism that's likely the disposition of of a rational majority but then you get to the third stage which is frankly where i think we are 
with um, Bitcoin, although this was, again, we were talking about blockchain with this. And by the third stage, you know, a, a movement has gained more of a, of a clergy almost. This is a, a more substantial following taking shape as an organized body of thought and effort uh, with an increase in interest and involvement from people who were previously unaffiliated with, with any of it. So they weren't close to the initial forerunner, if you will. And then uh, stages four and five are, are kind of iterations of the same process, which is where that's where political bodies start to recognize and take notice of the growing effort. Um, and uh, stage four is kind of where the, the initial introduction of an idea um, shows up at state level thinking, maybe some early legislation um, that could could go against the pattern of enablement, but you know there are some other cases that demonstrate a straight line acceleration of uh, government adoption going from early legislation designed to test the waters to to outright adoption within an existing infrastructure. Um, I you, I suppose you could argue that uh, maybe we're we're close to that as well with with Bitcoin. You've got the fifth stage, which is you know full on government sponsorship where the government and maybe at the level of a single state fully embraces a movement. There's kind of a one, one state leading the charge on the legislative front and the rest will follow. Um, and then the final stage is stage six, where, you know, a transformative change reaches the peak of its evolution. You just think of that as widespread adoption. Right. So if you apply that to Bitcoin, um, I'm just going to go through here. So step one is, we said the prophet or the innovator. So in this case, it would be Satoshi, I guess, with his initial email announcing this new uh, distributed ledger technology, right? Step two is disciples. So it would be kind of the people who are immediately around him, the, the miners, the nodes. The, so kind of the, the near circle of people and institutions that both disseminated the, the whole Bitcoin philosophy and methodology and are also probably responsible for, for keeping it afloat and keeping it moving forward, right? Then you have stage three, we said, was the clergy. So I guess clergy is, is a little bit broader. So once you start getting like a little bit more institutionalized, which I guess, Nathan, you were referring to, you know, the large, are the large banks getting involved, which we do know the large banks are, they all do have some kind of distributed ledger, or blockchain um, efforts underway. It's kind of varying degrees to, to, to which they've committed to that. But I think most of the large institutions have, have some kind of effort underway. So I guess the question is, at what point does that go from being um, kind of a one-off or a, or a specific initiative to being part of their DNA, right? So that is probably where we're at now. And then I guess if you follow this framework, stage four should be some kind of government action either for or against, it doesn't matter, but, but you want to see kind of attention at the government level, which I think China, the Chinese government has already taken some steps to limit the, the buying and selling of Bitcoins or, or, or cryptocurrencies. Am I right? I want to say there is state level involvement from China. I'm, I, I'm not too knowledgeable on whether or not they're uh, enforcing uh, limits on the trading of it there, but there is state involvement. So I guess the question would be for the other big economies, so the, the U.S., Europe, England, Japan, um, are those governments going to 
take some kind of action either for or against Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, etc. Right. And I think with blockchain, you can even go further and look at individual states. But I think, you know, there are some efforts by various states to try to move their, you know, let's say their corporate records database or their UCC databases into a more blockchain environment. So you see some, some initial steps there, but probably we probably haven't seen that, that kind of big thing. In fact, one of the things I was saying is there's actually talk of the government restricting um, trading in Bitcoin because they're afraid that it's a bubble and, you know, if, if the bubble gets big enough and then it pops, then people people could lose their livelihood. So I've, I've heard talk about that. So it could very well be that the next step in the in the eventual, um, you know, globalization of, of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies is the government passes legislation limiting that, right? And which could be viewed as a bad thing, but when you look at it in the in, in, from the point of view of the overall framework, it's actually a step forward towards global adoption because once you have that step, now now you're forced to debate it, right? So it kind of elevates, even though it's on the surface it's a move against the cryptocurrency, but now you've elevated the discussion from being a discussion among individuals or among groups or whatever to now now it's a, the discussion is at the level of the entire society. Then the discussion takes place, and then according to this framework, eventually you have step five, which is the government pulls a 180 and kind of gets fully on board with it at some point, which means, I guess, for something like Bitcoin, it would be instead of trying to peg, in, instead of trying to introduce a, a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the U.S. dollar, you would do the opposite. You'd have, I'm not saying it would be the U.S., but let's say you'd have some third world country pegging their own currency to Bitcoin, right? And then you'd, you'd kind of see that play out across different countries until eventually that becomes kind of the global de facto. I guess that if you believe the framework, that's probably that, that could be one plausible direction. Yeah, I mean, um, arguably, even within that framework, I, I would think that we're somewhere between steps up four and five right now. Um, I think I remember reading um, back in like December, um, the SEC was allowing um, brokers to uh, hold Bitcoin um, on a five-year trial basis um, with the promise of no enforcement actions taken against them. I see uh, recently um, even uh, BNY Mellon um, has uh, started uh, allowing individuals to, uh, or they're holding Bitcoin now. Um, really, I mean, I feel like the, the government's trying to scope out Bitcoin, how they should regulate it. I feel like it's not a question of if anymore, but a question of how. Yeah, I agree. And in addition to how, of course, and just the question of when. And it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that and see how it develops. But we are out of time for this one. Uh, so thank you guys for being a part of this first edition of The Mess Hall on Views from the Crow's Nest. And I look forward to our next discussion and seeing what kind of back and forth we can have uh, on some new topics. Thanks again for listening here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague. Writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners. 
As a reminder, you can always find and subscribe to Views from the Crow's Nest on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. And of course, you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com. Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next view from the crow's nest, feel free to send us an email, engage at fisherjordan.com, and we will see you from the crow's nest.